0: Well, much thanks to Steve Haynes and John Kalp and Jeremy Lee for their leadership over the last several Sundays. Um, I'm really glad to be back. I've missed being here for sure. Well, this morning uh, we are continuing with our study through Psalm 119. Today we're looking at the third stanza, which is in verses 17 to 24. This stanza is based on the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Gimel. Psalm 119, as you know, is especially known for its thorough focus on the importance of the Word of God. Every stanza, really almost every verse, has something to say about what a treasure the Scriptures are to us and how important it is that we make regular use of that treasure God has given us. But Psalm 119 is more than just a treatise on the authority of Scripture it actually upholds the Scriptures as being essential to believers who are seeking to walk with God in a hostile that is, in a culture that is hostile to them. And so the, law, the, the, the psalm makes it clear that our commitment to the Lord has to be characterized by a strong commitment to his word. The two things go hand in hand, a commitment to the Lord and a commitment to his word. If we do that, we can stand firm in our faith. If we don't do that, then we are likely going to see our faith compromised and maybe even destroyed by, by, the, by the pressures of the culture around us. In the first stanza, verses one through eight, the psalmist talked about the blessing or the true happiness that God gives to people who are who are walking according to his law and really observing his testimonies. There's blessing in that. The second stanza Verses 9 to 16 talked about how a believer can live a life of purity in a hostile world. It can only be done by living it according to the Word of God. Well, in this third stanza, the psalmist talks about living the Christian life while dealing with outward hostility and pressure from the surrounding culture. And the emphasis in this stanza really makes sense when you see it in the context of the first two stanzas. If a person is being blessed by God as they live their life according to his law, if they're pursuing a life of pure purity and of devotion to God, living their life according to his word, there's going to be pushback from the culture when you do that. A culture that has rejected the Christian faith at large will not take kindly to those who either tell them with their words or by their actions that what they're doing and what they're believing is wrong. And the pressure to conform doesn't let up. It continues. Well, these verses were written to give help to believers who were dealing with hostility, a culture that is hostile to their faith. So in that light, let me mention again, there are several applications of that, and this verse is that, is that Daniel is a possibility to consider as someone who wrote this psalm. Again, we don't know who wrote this psalm. Uh, in fact, we are, we, we, we don't, I mean, we're not told. There's no, there's no author that's given credit for this. But we do know that, def, that Daniel definitely applied principles from this psalm that's laid out in Psalm 119 in his circumstance. We know that the author of this psalm writes as one who is a pilgrim or a stranger who is really being guided day and night by the law of the Lord. And that's exactly what we see in Daniel's situation. He was forcibly taken from his home in Judah and forced to live as an exile in Babylon. So he was living in a foreign land that was opposed to his faith. And he was under constant pressure to conform to the Babylonian belief system and their customs that resulted from that belief system. A situation like that is exactly what's in view of Psalms 119, 17 to 24. So let me read those verses for you. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I'm a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed. Who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Three main ideas I think we can see in these verses. First, in verses 17 to 20, we see a person who is living in a hostile culture, a culture that is hostile to the Lord, who is taking that to, to the Lord in prayer and talking to him about that. Secondly, we see in verse 21 to 23, 23 that the psalmist is, uh, is confident that the Lord is going to deal with those who are hostile toward his faith. And in verse 24, we see something of a summary in which the psalmist is actually kind of declaring again that the testimonies of God are what his delight and what his counsel is, in spite of what's going on around him. So, in our first main point, we see this. As people who live in cultures that are largely hostile to the Christian faith, believers must actively go to the Lord for help in how they live their lives. The Apostle Peter uh, describes Christians as strangers and aliens, in this world. I think the youth I know the youth had a, a retreat back in January, and I think that was the theme of the of the of the conference. That we are strangers and aliens in this world. And as a result, we are exposed to fleshly lust that wage war against our soul, strong desires that come from within us, but also things that we see lived out in the culture around us. So we find ourselves in situations where our faith is seriously tested. Well, that's not new to us. It's been happening to believers for centuries. Circumstances and situations are going to vary. They're going to be different. But the trials are equally serious. And the way to endure hostility to your faith is still the same as when this psalm was written. So first we see this. As committed servants of God, believers come to the Lord in prayer, trusting the Lord to keep his promise to grant them a bountiful a bountiful supply of grace. Verse 17 again, it says, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. So the psalmist here is praying and we notice one of the first things he does, he, he speaks of himself, identifies himself as God's servant. Now, of course, he didn't begin life that way. None of us do. He began as we all began as a servant of sin. But of course, at some point, God, in his grace, showed him his sin. He convicted him of the condemnation that his sin deserved. But the Lord would also lead him to see his need for a Savior and would also point him to who that Savior would be. It would be the promised Messiah, from one who was looking down the road to these promises. It would be the promised Messiah. That was his hope, the Passover lamb, who was given as the sacrifice for his sin. So the psalmist is a man of faith. He's one who has committed himself to the Lord as his covenant Lord. And now in a hostile situation, he reminds the Lord, he reminds himself of who he actually is. I'm a servant of God. That's who I am. I'm a servant of God. No matter how the culture tries to classify him, he knows his identity is that of being the servant of the Most High God. And because he is a covenant servant of the Most High God, he has full access to the Most High God in prayer. He knows that the Lord is going to hear his prayers, and he prays a very bold prayer. He asks the Lord to deal bountifully with him. He's asking for lots and lots and lots of grace. I want a lot of it, God. It's a very bold prayer, and he has great expectations that God is going to answer that prayer. When we think of something that's bountiful, obviously it's what you need, but it goes beyond what you need. It's an overflow, and that's what he's asking for. He's asking for the Lord to deal with him in ways that are overwhelmingly good and merciful. We have this same promise that God will do this for us in Philippians 4.19 where Paul says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's bountiful. If he supplies your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus, he's providing for you and I in bountiful ways. It's interesting that that Paul, when he wrote that, he actually has, it begins in the same way that the psalmist did. He says, my God will supply. So he's saying right off, I am in covenant with God. He is my God, and I trust him. The psalmist did the same thing. I'm coming to you as your servant. I'm connected with you. You are committed to me. I'm committed to you. And so therefore, he asked for bountiful help, full all the riches that he could use in glory. Now, this prayer is not being prayed from the perspective of, I've really been good, God, so I deserve these blessings. It's nothing like that. It's based on the goodness of God to come to him because I'm your servant. I'm your servant, and I need this, and you know I need this. So as believers, we are, we are to pray with this same expectation that our God will deal bountifully with us. You got anything in your life you think I could use some bountiful help? Will you have a God who will answer that prayer? Every single believer has been promised a bountiful supply of grace in Christ. He gives grace to forgive us when we sin, He gives grace to grant us spiritual life and growth in our spiritual life. He gives grace to enable us to live in ways that honor God. His grace is always more than sufficient. In verse 17, The psalmist is asking that he may live, that I may live and keep your word. Now, this may be a literal request for God to spare his life. For example, we know that there were several times, we bring Daniel in here again, when Daniel's life was threatened by Babylonian authorities. First, when the king could not get any of the Babylonian wise men to actually tell him what his dream was, he threatened to kill all the wise men, and that include Daniel and his friends. Secondly, when the king required all the people to bow to an image of gold. This is where Daniel's friends are especially highlighted. And if they refused, then the king threw them into a fiery furnace. And then thirdly, When it was made illegal to pray to anyone but the king on penalty of death, Daniel continued to pray anyway. In each of these situations, the actual life of Daniel and his friend was being threatened. God delivered them every time. But the verses also request not just to spare his life, but how he would live the life that God enables him to continue to have. He says, I need your bountiful help so I can live and keep your word. I mean, I don't want to just live a longer life. I want to live so I can keep your word in my life and apply it in every aspect of my life. That's what he was doing. And he was needing a bountiful supply of grace to do that. The Lord will answer that prayer for us, just like he answered it for the psalmist. Every day of our lives... We stand in need of God's bountiful grace to help us stand against sin personally and to keep his word. We need that. Well, the psalmist then builds on this request in verses 18 and 19. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. So here we see next that in order to believe and apply the word of God, believers look to the Lord to reveal to them the glorious truths that are there as opposed to what the world has to offer. So the psalmist wants to live in such a way that his life is characterized by keeping the word. That's what he said in verse 17. But this is more than just making sure I obey all the rules. God's law is more than a set of rules. Of course, it is a right and wrong and so forth, but it's more than that. The psalmist recognizes that there are glorious, mind-boggling truths in God's law. The word of God is full of wonder precisely because it is the word of God. So a big part of the psalmist's prayer for God to deal bountifully with him is to open his eyes, open the eyes of his heart, so to speak, so that he can see the wonder of God's word. Because if he doesn't open his eyes, all he'll see is just the rules. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But God's word is a word that's full of wonder, and that's what he wants to see. And the way the, the, the psalmist has composed this psalm, Psalm 119, you can see God answered his prayer because he has 176 verses that are overwhelmingly focused on the beauty and wonder of God's word. So you just read the psalm and see, yep, God answered his prayer. He dealt bountifully with him. He opened his eyes to behold the wonder of God's word and he wrote it down. It's here. I mean, in... We've mentioned this before, and we'll say it multiple times as we go. As he writes about God's word, he talks about it being the, the word of God. He talks about it being the law. He talks about it being the testimonies. He talks about it being the commandments, the judgments, the ordinances, the statutes, the promises, just oh, on and on. There's so many different things he continues to say. So the Lord did bountifully open the eyes of the psalmist, and he wrote down what he, what he, what he saw. So we need to be able to see what really is in the scriptures and not just read our own ideas into it. Every one of us are prone to do that, to read our own ideas into the verse that we just read. He's saying, God, I don't want to just read my ideas. I want you to just show me the wonderful things that are there because it's your word, not me putting my ideas into it. And the more that we see the wonders in his word, the more that we will be inclined to keep that word. So these verses are connected for sure with each other. As part of this request, the psalmist identifies himself as a stranger or an exile in the earth. He's God's servant, but that means he does not fit comfortably in the culture. Daniel and his friends would have felt this in a very keen way. Jerusalem, which was of course, their their home and the, the capital and the city of the Lord had been completely destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. There was no more priestly work. There were no more sacrifices being offered. There were no more feasts being observed. They truly were exiles in a pagan country. And so are we. Last month was the uh, is it the 50th anniversary, I guess of the Roe versus Wade? We live in a society that has killed 60 million babies in the womb legally. Praise God that ungodly law has been overturned, But there are many in our culture who believe this killing of unborn children needs to continue. Just a few weeks ago, you probably may have read about this, there was a law that was put forth those children who survive abortion to go and take care of them. They wouldn't pass it. They want those children that survive abortion to be be ignored until they die. That's our civil magistrates. That's ungodly. And that's where we live. And what's worse is some people even use Bible verses to (laughs) defend themselves with those ideas. We need the Lord to deal bountifully with us to help us see how we can address these kind of issues as Christians, not just that issue of abortion, but the fact that it, it represents the fact that there are so many people who find themselves in very challenging and difficult and hard situations and we want to know how best to be able to help them, to be able to encourage them, to be able to show love. We just we need help. We need the Lord to deal bountifully with us, to open our eyes so that we can see what we need to do as we relate to what's going on in our culture, to have a persevering faith ourselves. Well, that's, <clears throat> that's why the psalmist asks the Lord, he says here, don't hide your commandments from me. It says that in verse 19. I'm a stranger in the land. I'm an alien. Don't hide your commandments from me. He knows how important the truth is, how important the word of God is. I just finished reading a book that uh, that Wayne Carver let me uh, borrow about the life and ministry of Brother Andrew, uh, known as God's Smuggler. And for decades, for decades, uh, he worked to get Bibles to peoples who lived mostly in communist countries because... The reality is they were not allowed to have Bibles most of the time, and it was heartbreaking to read that in many of those churches, not just the churches themselves, but even the pastors didn't have a Bible. And so he had a major ministry in getting those Bibles, smuggling Bibles into places where they were illegal. Really amazing. Realizing, again, what an important, how important it is that we have access to the Scriptures. Don't hide your word from me. Another application that's really More focused on our own country, it's encouraging when you realize in our own nation how many of the founding fathers of our nation actively worked to make sure that Scripture was in the people's hands. There were several signers of the Constitution, several signers of the Declaration of Independence, Supreme Court justices, there were multiple governors of the different colonies and others who were all instrumental in starting Bible societies in all of the colony, just, just to make sure that people from every walk of life had access to the scriptures. That's important. We all are in great need of the word of God, since we as Christians are strangers in the earth. So may the Lord open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are there in his word, so that we can live them out accordingly. And then as the psalmist continues to address this situation, we see this next point. In light of great challenges to their faith, believers regularly, regularly come to the Lord in desperation to know the Lord and to know his word. Verse 20 says, my soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. So the psalmist is grateful for the longing that the Lord has given him to want to know this word crushed with longing really speaks of an intense desire that he's speaking of. And once again, this is part of God's answer to deal bountifully with his servant. He's done that. He's giving him a desire to want to know the word, to want to understand it. I mean, you see something that you know is a wonder to you like he prayed for. Again, you want to look at it more closely, you want to examine it more closely. The scripture is not like Just a Ripley's Believe It or Not that just has all kinds of interesting things that might surprise you. The scripture is the word of God that reveals the truths of God. They tell us who God is. That in itself is remarkable. We have a book that tells us who God is. Describes it for us. We have a book that tells us about how he created the world. We have a book that talks about how he sustains every aspect of of his creation every day all through the years. We have a book that talks about how he created man, male and female, and in his own image. We have a book that tells us about sin. It tells us about judgment. It tells us about the person and work of Jesus Christ as well and how he accomplished salvation for sinners. It tells us about the need for repentance and the need for faith. It tells us about how to live in in this world as his servant, and to give us a worldview that enables us to see the world as a servant of God would see it. It's a blessing of God's grace when he gives us a strong desire for his word. In the context of a culture that's hostile to the Christian faith, this strong desire becomes, well, it it has a tinge of desperation in it. Because it's not just, I desire because I want to know. I desire because I have to know. I mean, look what I'm being faced with. Look what's going on. I have to know what is true. I have to know what I need to know. I have to be clear about your promises because I need help. So it takes on a tinge of desperation, as a, a, the, the way that this is written out. And the last three words of this verse, verse 20, are especially challenging says, the psalmist's soul is crushed with longing after God's ordinances at all times. <laughs> at all times. I mean, that's an amazing testimony. His desire for the Lord and for his word was not just something that just kind of hit him occasionally, here and there. Thank the Lord for the times it hits us occasionally. But he's saying, I have an ongoing desire, an intense desire, an intense feeling of desperation for the word at all times. What a testimony. And it's like it kind of builds on itself. The more God would open his eyes to see these wonderful things in his law, the more he wants to know. And the more he wants to see how they apply. And the more things come up in life, the more he needs help to know what to do. And so he felt that pressure of living in a hostile culture and at all times, he needed to have this focus on the word of God. So we see that as a, as a people who live in cultures, therefore, that are hostile to the Christian faith, we have to actively, consistently go to the Lord for help on how to live our lives. Second main point is this. Believers can be confident that the Lord will deal with those who are arrogant and hostile to the Christian faith. This is verse 21 to 23. And in the focus here, the psalmist changes his focus. Now he's praying about those who are not following the Lord. In fact, they may even be those who are, well, in some cases they are, they are personally hostile toward him. Well, first he reminds himself in prayer of God's actions toward those who reject him. Verse 21 says, you rebuke the arrogant the cursed who wander from your commandments. So he's here there. See here that the psalmist points out that pride, pride is truly a wretched sin that causes people to rebel against the Lord and come under his judgment. So the scripture tells us that God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble, but he gives opposed to the proud. To be proud we don't have to think too hard about this, but to be proud is to be focused on ourself, to be focused on what I want, even though it's opposed to the will of God. It's to be guided by the desires in my heart, not, desires, not guided by the word of our God. It's to be self-sufficient. To be proud is to be in direct opposition to the Most High God. And it's only those who are humble Will be obedient to his commands. So, as Christians, as you know, we are not immune to the sin of pride. It's something that we have to deal with, I'm sure, on a regular basis. We're called to grow in humility. Now, if this is something that Daniel is praying, it may be a reference to his fellow Jews in Babylon that were beginning to blend in, not just beginning to, had done it a lot were blending in with the culture instead of standing firm for the Lord there in Babylon. He prays about this in Daniel chapter 9. This is a prayer, for the most part, that that Daniel is praying. So on behalf of his fellow Jews, Daniel confesses they had acted wickedly and rebelled against God's commandments. He confesses that they had refused to listen to the prophets who had spoken to them in his name. And then here's what he says in verses seven and eight. This is Daniel nine, verse seven and eight. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby, and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which you have committed, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us. O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. One thing that Daniel is doing in this prayer, he's confessing sins that because of these sins, this is why God sent Babylon to destroy them and carry them off into exile. But he's also praying about the sins that were happening in the present while they were in Babylon or those who had been scattered other places. So many of the Jews were not willing to repent of their sins still. Instead, they were blending in and they were accepting the ways of the Babylonians. Well, God rebukes them for this. Now, it could also be a reference to civil magistrates who were in active rebellion to God, a sin in which pride is the root. When you're in rebellion to God, pride is the root of that. The psalmist knows that to live in active, unrepentant pride is to put yourself under the curse of God. Interesting that Matthew Henry made this point. He said, he said, proud sinners bless themselves for what they're doing while God is cursing them. They bless themselves for what they're saying and what they're doing. And God is at the same time cursing them. He says they're wandering or straying away from God's commandments and doing what is right in their own eyes, according to the spirit of the times. If they will not repent, they will be judged. For sure, there will be judgment in eternity. But sometimes that judgment takes place in time. We have several biblical examples. Let me give a few examples here. This is what happened to Cain in Genesis chapter 4 when he proudly murdered his brother Abel. He was rebuked by God. We see it happen to Pharaoh, who would not let the Israelites go free from their slavery in Egypt, again because of his pride. We see it happen to Haman, who was actively seeking to annihilate the Jews in the Persian Empire. God cursed him for sure. We see it when the Lord humbled King Nebuchadnezzar (coughs) in Daniel chapter 3. And we see what happened to Herod in the book of Acts when he received praise as if he were a god. God struck him dead on the spot. Pride is a wretched sin that we must resist. But we can also remind ourselves that the one true God will see to it that it is judged in his time and in his way. Well, the psalmist then speaks of ways... (coughs) That these arrogant people have caused him some great harm. Verse 22, he says, Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. (laughs) So here we see next that the proud are often opposed to the Lord and those who are committed to living godly lives. So those who have proudly set themselves up against the one true God will often set themselves against his people as well. They will reproach, the idea is uh, insult show scorn for believers, they will show contempt for Christians, will despise those who are truly, who are seeking to live as true servants of God. Believers will be considered the enemy to the things they want to do, the sinful things they want to codify into law. And when they stand firm for the gospel, that gospel will be rejected. When they stand firm for what the commandments of scripture define as right and wrong, they may be accused of something like hate speech, Well, the psalmist says simply that the reason they despise him is because I observe the testimonies of God. That's why they despise me. And the culture that's hostile to the Christian faith, that can get you into a lot of trouble, is to hold firm to the testimonies of God. It leads people to despise you. Jesus warned us this is what happened. John 15, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. He said also there, if the world persecutes me, it's going to persecute you as well. You know that. That's the normal response of those who are arrogant and have rejected the one true God and have put God's crown on their own head, basically. Now, I'll also say this. Jesus promised that. That doesn't mean it's wrong for us to pray about it. The psalmist responds by taking this whole disturbing situation to God in prayer. He asks God to personally address those who treat him with such contempt. Should we pray like that? Well, the fact is that it's in Scripture. I think the answer is yes. There's an example here for us to use. And actually, when you think about it, the Apostle Paul really directed us to pray in a similar way. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, Paul says, Pray for those in authority so that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In other words, we're praying that as Christians, we will be allowed and encouraged by the civil authorities to pursue godliness in every way, in every aspect of life. All God things. We're supposed to pray that laws and the magistrates would govern in such a way that we're not only allowed, but that we're encouraged to live godly in every way. In other words, Lord, take away the reproach and the contempt because I observe the testimonies of your scripture. It's the same prayer. It's the same prayer. So, yes, I think we should pray this prayer. But we also pray, being prepared to endure trials when we stand firm in our faith. We must not seek to avoid hardship by compromising the faith so we can fit in a little better. But whatever takes place, we are trusting that God will deal bountifully with us, that we may live and keep his word. Well, the psalmist continues his line of thinking with what he says in verse 23. He says, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. So we see from this verse that there may be organized opposition to believers, but they can find God's strength and help as they meditate on his word. Find God's strength and help as they meditate on his word. Well, the psalmist gets specific here about what, about, where a big part of this hostility was coming from toward him. It's coming from the civil magistrates who are in authority over him. Matter of fact, he specifically says, they sit and talk against me. They're talking against me. It's my situation that they're talking about. Well, if David wrote this psalm, which is another possibility, he could be referring to King Saul when he was pursuing David as if David was his enemy and had every intention of killing David. But Lord, of course, delivered David from the hand of King Saul. But once again, we see a very clear example also in the life of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, we see that Daniel was serving as a commissioner under King Darius. At this point, the Persians had conquered the Babylonians, and he was serving as a commissioner under King Darius the Persian. God blessed him in his role, and his fellow commissioners were getting very jealous and upset at Daniel. And they were trying to find ways that they could bring Daniel down to get him out of there, do whatever they could to cause him harm. But Daniel was a man of just such impeccable character, there was nothing they could find that they could get on him that would stick. So they made a law and got the king to sign this, that one could only address their prayers to the king. No one else, they had to address their prayers to the king king signed the law. When Daniel heard of it, he continued to open the windows of his chambers three times a day and kneel in prayer to the one true God. Daniel never wavered. He never wavered. He knew they, that there were, there were princes who were sitting and talking against him, planning against him. He knew that. He knew what the law of God said. Have no other gods before the one true God. He knew what that said because the scripture, meditating on the scriptures, tied into this. And so to pray to the king would violate that commandment. There's no way he could do that. So as a result of his meditation on God's statutes, he disobeyed the unjust law and continued to pray. And as you know, though he was arrested and thrown to the lions, the Lord delivered him. It would be easy for us to give lots of attention to focusing on unjust and godly laws and there's a place to do that to address those things. But our ultimate meditation, thinking carefully about, is supposed to be focused on the scriptures, on the word of God. And as we consider those verses, maybe one word at a time, maybe one phrase at a time, considering the context, praying them and, kind of, and asking God to apply them, as we meditate on those scriptures, We are asking God to open our eyes that we might see the wonderful things that are there. So we can be confident that the Lord is going to deal with all who are arrogant and all who are hostile to the Christian faith as we continue to observe his testimonies. Now, the last verse of this stanza seems to me to be something of a final declaration, almost a summary of the psalmist's confidence in the word of God. 24. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. That's the final word, so to speak. So third main point is this. In conclusion, when believers are surrounded by those who are hostile to their faith, they find what they need in the testimonies of God. So these are verses, I mean this whole stanza, that openly admit that it's hard to live in a culture where your faith is under attack and people see you as the bad guys. But it's not as though God has left us without any ammunition for the fight. Our God has given us his all-sufficient, fully inspired, authoritative word. Brian Borgman made this observation about these verses. He says, when we feel the antagonism of a culture at war with God, the hostility of those who hate holiness and despise the word of God, we need to go to our source of strength and counsel, which is God's holy word. Well, the psalmist testifies in these verses that that's exactly what he did. And then he wholeheartedly is commending the same thing to us. He closes this stanza by reemphasizing two things. First is this. Believers find their delight in the word of God, not in the approval of the culture. Our delight in the word of God, not in the approval of the culture. The psalmist says, your testimonies are my delight. That's what gives me joy. And comfort and encouragement, your testimonies are my delight. Remember, he had asked the Lord to deal with bountifully with him, so that he could live his life as a man who kept his word. He asked the Lord to open the eyes of his understanding so that he could see all the wonderful things that are in God's law. He recognized that he was living as an alien in the earth and having to deal with arrogant people who despised him because they despised his faith. And he knew, I'm sure, that if you just compromise some, well, it may seem like a little bit at first, but the compromises are never little. They're going to always get worse, bigger and bigger. He, knew, he knows if he just compromises, the pressure's going to be less. It's not going to be as bad. But he also knew that as a faithful servant of God, he couldn't do that. He just could not do that. So he went to the word of God for comfort and for encouragement. The word of God would be his delight, and that's what he found. The Lord gave him great delight. As he prayed and meditated on the word, the testimonies of the word, there's all kinds of things that the word of God could testify to him about. The word could testify to him, this is your father's world that he created. He's the one who is sovereign over all of this. You're going to find that testimony in so many different ways as you think through the scripture. You're going to be able to delight in the God who is your creator, the one who is actively involved in every aspect, not only of your life, but of this, in this world as lar- at large. You're going to be able to see how the scripture testifies to the fact that your God is the glorious, eternal Father, Son, Holy Spirit that you can delight in. You're going to find the scripture testifying to his love, testifying to his mercy, testifying to his grace testifying to all kinds of examples of how he delivered people who were in such difficult times, testimonies of his power. You can be, truly delight yourself in the testimonies of God that are all through the word of God, that are meant to encourage us when we are in difficult times, when we're hard times. So as believers, we find our delight, our comfort And the word of God, not in the approval of the culture. It's easy to go there. But what we look to is the approval and the the comfort of the scriptures. The second thing the psalmist emphasizes here in this final verse is that believers receive life-giving counsel from the scriptures, not from the philosophies of the world. So the testimonies of God were also the psalmist counselors. They're his delight and there also is counselors. A counselor is someone who gives advice, someone who helps us think through our situation, someone who seeks to help us challenge the, uh, uh, face the challenges that we're facing. Good counselors will tell us what is true and where we're relieving things that are false. Good counselors will help us to see how our responses are sometimes wrong and how they could be different and should be not what, what we have done necessarily. Good counselors are going to give you hope as they address your challenges and and help you to address them in right ways, ways that will honor God especially. The Word of God does all that for us. We are constantly being given counsel by the culture. We are constantly being told, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's what we say is right, here's what we say is wrong. We're being told what our opinions should be on all kinds of things, and overwhelmingly, They are wrong about most everything they say. But the word of God is absolutely true. And it's a trustworthy counselor for us because it is the word of God. Every true Christian really wants to honor God. That's just part of what God has put in us. We want to honor him. And you can't do that without his word. You just can't. His word will always be profitable for us. It may be convicting us of sin. It may be encouraging us with a promise, but it's always going to be profitable. It's always going to be helpful and give us what we need. So as his servants, as strangers in the earth, we need the Lord to open our eyes so that we can see wonderful things in his law and know that that's our delight. Those are what our counselors are. Lord, we do thank you for your word. I thank you again for the examples that we have. Every one of us deal with difficulties challenges of different sorts. It may be a conversation with an individual person. It may be just things that are kind of a bigger picture type situations. It may just be personal temptations and things that we struggle with. Whatever it might be, we all have significant challenges. And I thank you so much, Lord, that you are a God who deals bountifully with your servants. Lord, help us to trust you. We go to you in prayer And we trust you to grant us the things that we need to see and understand in your word. I ask that you would deal bountifully with every one of us in here. That you would cause us to just reap from the glories of your grace, the riches of the glory of your grace that are ours in Christ Jesus. We ask for your help, that you would sustain us when we're feeling bad, when we're feeling discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we're confused, I ask that you would deal with us in bountiful and, 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 and uh, helpful, godly ways. We need your help. We all need your help. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then you can't pray this prayer. Because if you haven't put your faith in Christ, you fit in the category of someone who is arrogant, someone who is proud and feels like you can do without that. Please don't stay there. Please don't stay there. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize I have been proud. I've tried to be self-sufficient, but I know that's not going to work. I confess that as sin. I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to submit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off. For those who are watching online, can reach out to us through the website.